Isaiah. Um, I'm not reading from the Pew Bible. Um, I didn't have one up here. So I'm not sure what page it is in your book. But we're, we're going to look at the fifth chapter. Um, begin reading at the fifth verse. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah and his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. And you who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful homes without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield a mere epith. And you who rise early in the morning in pursuit of strong drink, who linger in the evening to be inflamed by wine, whose feast consists of lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine, but who do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile without knowledge. Their nobles are dying of hunger and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down, her throng and all who exult in her. People are bowed down, everyone is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are humbled. But the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice, and the holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. Then the lambs shall graze as in their pasture, fatlings and kids shall feed among the ruins. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word of Christ among us. Morning, friends. It's good to be here with you today. It is good to be here with you today after the events of Friday night and yesterday. Um, and it's, it's that strange moment of, does church matter? Does it matter to be a people of faith that gather together um, in, in a world where this exists? Um, a couple of things that I just want to go through real quickly. Um, I know there's kids here because there's not, um, there's not another place for them to be right now. Um, I want you to first know that I was a, I was a chaplain in a children's hospital for a decade. Um, so I'm quite experienced at talking about hard things with kids in a way that's accessible and um, tender. And I know we're going to talk about hard things. And so if you feel the need to take your children out, I understand that. Um, 
we are going to talk about hard things today. Because as my friends who belong to 12-step movements tell me, um, we are only as sick as our secrets. And we, we need to confront some dark truths about our nation today. And the complicity of the church in how we got here. So I, I just need to put that out there. I also want you to know that this is not a partisan sermon. It is a political sermon. And let, let, let me tell you the difference between those. There, there is plenty of blame to go around for everyone. This is not lifting up one side over another. But politics comes from the, word, the Greek word polos, which is just the people. Anytime the people gather and we have ideas about how the people should gather and work together to make life better for everyone, that is a political statement. So all of Scripture is political. It, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we chose these texts a while ago and that they fit this weekend, but we really could have opened anywhere in the Bible and it would have had something to say about today. Do you agree? Yeah, so it's... This is a political document, and let's, let's talk about the first scripture for just a moment. When um, Jesus gives this sermon, uh, this reading from Isaiah, one way to read how he says it is once he found himself in scripture, once he found the part of scripture that spoke to how he understood his mission in the world, he read this. He reads it and sits down, which was Jewish custom. That you read the scripture standing and then you sit to teach. So it's dialogical. I love dialogical. So if anyone has a question, just shout it out. We'll, we'll do this together because this is important work that the people of God have to do right now. So do this with me. I am not alone. But anyway, he sits down and starts talking and he says immediately, this word is a fulfilled in your hearing today. The next line is everyone was excited. They all spoke well of him. Why? Because the word anointed is actually the word Messiah. And the messianic expectation was that a king would come and liberate them from empire. Now, you know, they didn't have sort of in their imagination the idea of a democratic republic. In their imagination, it was a binary. It was a good king or an oppressive empire. Of, the, of those two choices, what are you choosing? A good king. And here in this moment, Jesus says, I am anointed. I am here. This is fulfilled. This is really good news. They're excited. He then goes on to share that God's grace is actually bigger. And it actually is going to be extended to the people who are oppressing us. They don't like that so much. They actually take him outside, take him to a cliff, and are ready to throw him off. This, docu this document, our Bible, is a political document that upsets people. So, so that's where we are. <laughs> you ready? Okay, so let's pray. Oh, I forgot. This is with me, so I'm going to hold this. Holy and gracious God, creator, redeemer, liberator, we call upon you. We are humble, we are fearful, we are angry maybe, we don't understand this world, and yet we know 
meaning of it. Help us to imagine how we are your people. Help us to imagine how we collaborate with your spirit to be agents of shalom, agents of peace and wholeness and wellness and justice in our common place. Holy God, Holy Spirit, come now. Be with us. Redeem our imaginations. Transform our hatreds. Extend our ability to love beyond what we think is possible. It is in the name of Jesus, the Anointed One, we pray. Amen. So I chose this passage, and Joanna and I were laughing. It was one of our, the favorite passages of a former professor at SFTS. Um, he coined this word that is just like way too long. Marvin Chaney talked about lateral fundalization. I'm not even going to make you say that with me. Um, but he, was, he, he came up with that term because he was working at that time with a lot of um, uh, clergy folks in Latin America um, who hadn't had a lot of formal theological education. And so he was, he was helping them see deeper into the Bible. And what was interesting for him is because they were working the land, because they were farmers, and the Bible is so much about agricultural understanding the world. He ended up saying, oh yeah, they taught me the Bible far more than I taught them. And in, in that time in Latin, Latin America, they, there would be these large plantations, latifundi. And then they would you know, have sharecroppers, and then these people would get further into debt, and they'd buy up their land. And so their, their latifundi were becoming larger and larger. And so people were becoming poorer, poorer and poorer. And so he coined this term lateral fundalization. And then he looked in Isaiah and he's like, wait, this has been going on since the 8th century BCE. This problem has existed for 3,000 years. This housing crisis that we're currently experiencing is nothing new. Um, on Wednesday, I was over at uh, San Rafael Catholic Church in San Rafael. And there was this whole summit on how, how do we do renter's protection? Um, because right now, um, I could be evicted from my apartment without cause. Um, they could come to me and say, you know what, we're going to increase your rent $1,000 a month. That, that, that is Marin County right now. And it really only takes something like that or some other hiccup, like, you know, your engine doesn't explode, now you can't get to work. Any one of those things, and you are now forced to live outdoors. Um, I am the interim director of Marine um, Interface Street Chaplaincy. It is my honor to work, to have my friends who live outdoors. Um, they are teaching me scripture anyway. Um, I, I get to hang out. I welcome you to come hang out with us. We're in your sister sibling um, congregation over in First Christ Hammerfell. Um, every Tuesday at five, we, we gather, we do some spiritual rituals, and then we have a meal together. Doesn't that kind of sound like church? Um, and part of the what we do together is we just sit. Think about if you live outdoors and are constantly being pushed to other places. You have no home. You have no place to sit. 
So we sit together just so that we get still long enough in ourselves that we come back to home in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies so that we can experience peace, so that we can reimagine hope for ourselves. So, so I welcome you. Come any Tuesday night. That'd be great. Because the biggest thing I think we can do at this point in time around the, the housing crisis is to know one another. Once, once this stops being an issue and it becomes people and these people are your friends, you will want to do something different. I, I firmly believe that. So, so that, that actually was my whole point in being here and that was going to be the sermon. And then something happened this weekend, and so now we're going to do a different sermon. Um, so, Friday night... Um, okay, so for those who don't know, in Charlottesville, they were removing a Robert E. Lee statue. That is happening throughout the South right now, where um, statues memorializing um, Confederate um, figures are now being taken down because they realize, wait, this is kind of weird. Why are we honoring people for basically committing treason against our country who lost the war 150 years ago? Why are we still honoring that when it actually are images that strike fear in some of our fellow citizens? When these images are the very images that groups like the Ku Klux Klan celebrate? Why, why are we lifting these up for honor? And some people are like, oh, you're just trying to erase our history and heritage. In most cases, these statues are being moved to museums. This is not to forget history. It is to recognize the place for history. This is history that we learn from, that we, don't, that we hope and pray we don't repeat. It is not history we honor. And so that, that's happening. It happened in New Orleans. It's happening in Charlotte's, Charlottesville, Virginia. And several groups, really ringly by Richard Spencer, if it's a name you don't know, uh, it's not worth knowing him. Um, and David Duke, I imagine you know that name. And they reached out to all these um, various white supremacist hate groups and said, let's unite the right to protest the re um, removal of the statue. And so there was just going to be thousands of people at a Unite the Right rally this yesterday, Saturday, to protest the removal of the statue. Um, several, several clergy, um, some of the names you might know, Tracy Blackman, who is the um, executive director of Justice and Witness for your sibling denomination, United Church of Christ, Cornell West, um, many others that I can't even think, gathered. And on Friday night, they were, they were in a church praying for how they would be witnesses for the gospel against this atrocity. So, so, so imagine that Friday night, they're in a church like this, praying for strength to stand up to hate. And the church is surrounded by hundreds of people with torches. In 2017. No, no need to wear sheets anymore. Appar apparently the Ku Klux Klan can be in public without shame in 2017. That's where our country is. So from there, they marched through the campus of the University of Virginia. 
headed towards the Robert E. Lee statue, the Jefferson statue, and were shouting various chants. Um, you will not replace us. I'm not sure who the you is, and I'm not really sure who the us is, but that sounds pretty th- threatening. Occasionally, they s- twisted that phrase and said, Jew will not replace us. So very, very clearly anti-Semitic. Jew will not replace us. The one that was the most disturbing to me is they were chanting blood and soil. Blood and soil. Blood and soil. That is actually the English translation of a slogan of the Third Reich. In Nazi Germany, the Department of Agriculture had the slogan, Blood and Soil. My German's not so good, it was like Blut und Broden, I think. Something along those lines. But it was Blood and Soil. They, are de- they were deliberately chanting a slogan of Nazi Germany. The interesting or sad or whatever tragic understanding of that blood and soil thing of the Department of Agriculture was it, it was conjuring up this old Germanic spiritualism of this idea of that there was a pure German race who had emerged from the soil and this soil was mystically theirs and belonged to no one else. And it was really lifting up the idea of the farmer. The farmer, which is not a bad thing to lift up the farmer, but it was intentionally lifting up the farmer to ostracize the, the, the immigrants that were moving into urban settings who were frequently Jewish. It, it's an intentionally xenophobic phrase that they, that they were ch- chanting. Now, what's interesting is Scripture really does understand the importance of blood and soil. I don't know if you noticed in that passage, both those words were there. Blood and soil. These are important words. Um, These are death-dealing words or life-giving words. And so as people of faith, we need to figure out which they are and how we're using them and how we help one another and the wider world Realize that blood and soil are really important. And how do we do that well? So let's begin with the very beginning. Genesis. God bends down in the clay, the soil, and shapes the first human creature. And then breathes into it. We are deeply connected to the soil. How many times have you not been actually attached Like, feet on the ground. Like, we're almost always on the soil. Even if you're in a tall building, that building is still foundationally on the soil. It's only those few rare times where we're flying, and that's kind of weird. And I mean, we're buckled in, and we're told, you know... I mean, like, so there's very few times that we're not intimately connected with the soil. And even the whole time we're on the airplane, it's all about, well, we just took off, and we're going to land back on soil. It's always about, like, our relationship to terra firma. Soil. Right? So it's always soil. Um, Furthermore, this image of blood. Just a couple chapters later, Cain and Abel have this argument over whose sacrifice is more pleasing to God. 
Basically, it's the first sort of uh, religious war. It's the first murder. It's the first fratricide. But it's actually about religion. Imagine that. Who's doing religion better? It also lets you know that it's between a shepherd and a farmer. Well, both are farmers, but like agriculture, how we do agriculture. Are you, are you tilling the land or are you grazing the land? It let us know that we were destined as humans to always be struggling with how do we share land. That all of our wars are either going to be about religion or about who gets land. And often both at the same time. That is the story of scripture. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard truth, but it's not like that we are condemned to that. We're just invited to confront that and then figure out how we do it better. Now, I've said, and I will continue to say, that the Bible is a political document. That does not mean it's univocal. It doesn't have one political thing going on in it. You know, we have, you know, I'm sure you've had like really close atheist friends who have told you, well, the Bible can be used to support anything. As if that's reason to dismiss it. No, there, there were people of God who disagreed about what it meant to be the people of God. Is that, have you had a session meeting where your good friend and you disagreed vehemently about how you were going to be the people of God? Like you looked at the budget and budgets are moral documents. And so they do reflect how we are doing gospel in the world. And you disagree. The people of God disagree. That's not new. So in the Bible, you have like Ezra and Nehemiah who have experienced like being crushed by Assyria and then Babylon and now Persia saying, you know what? I really think the way we can be the people of God is if we build the wall, exclude all foreigners and just get back to praying to God. I know that sounds familiar to right now. But I just want you to know that actually is in the Bible. People of God have been thinking that for thousands of years. We also have Isaiah going, yeah, no, when we are really the people of God, God, the foreigner will be welcomed, the eunuch will be welcomed. And so always in Scripture there is this dialogue about what it means to be the people of God. This is not new. So this weekend is not new. It's new for some of us. To see it out there. But I know for many of my friends, I mean, I grew up in the South. I know for many of my friends, this is not new. This is very painful because it, it, it evokes painful memories. It, it evokes memories of when their, their father was holding a gun trying to keep the clan at bay because they might be lynched. I mean, this is, this is scary stuff, and this is here, but this is not new. So what does it mean to be the people of God? In December, I got to go to Standing Rock. I, um, that experience is still transforming who I am. Um, I um, went to Standing Rock... I mean, this time last year, I was, I was following it in the news media. I was following how, you know, this group of people, and it actually was started by young people. And so, again, I want to speak to young people. The, this biggest civil rights movement of my lifetime 
Um, the Archbishop of the Episcopal Church USA, Michael Curry, called it the Selma of our generation. That was started by a 13-year-old girl. And then her friends, her youth group, basically, started tweeting about it, started making YouTube videos. Um, if The whole water is life hashtag and no dapple, those were started by kids. The movement of kids brought thousands of people to North Dakota to confront, wait, why, why does this company get to put a pipeline through these people's water source and we know it's going to contaminate their water? Why, why did they get to do that against their sovereign rights? Like, wh- why? And so that's the question of Standing Rock. So I was praying about this and interested and in October, there was a call for um, faith holders of other traditions to come to the sacred fire and pray with them. Join us in prayers. These, this was not a protest. These were water protectors. They were there and told us time and again, you're not here to protest. You are here to pray with us. This is about prayer and ceremony. This is a sacred fire. We are calling upon our ancestors to help us Preserve the land, the soil that has been entrusted to us for future generations. This was a lived experience of seven generation thinking. And so I had friends that went. It, I wanted to go, but you know, it's, I didn't have the finances to go. And it's just like, well, I have friends going, so I'll just, you know, I'll contribute to them going. I, we can't go to everything. A couple weeks after they were there, um, there was this incident where um, the line of demarcation was the Cannonball Bridge. It goes over the Cannonball River. And um, these 32 different law enforcement agencies, heavily militarized, armored Humvees, snipers on the other side, a complete asymmetrical force when you are dealing with just people praying on the other side of the river. They had blocked off the bridge and said, you can't come here. Again, a bridge that belonged to them by treaty. And on that night, the water protectors, this was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Think about that for a moment. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, um, where we continue to memorialize a sanitized version of our origin as a nation. Where where we tell the story of the hospitality of Native folks receiving pilgrims, but totally leave out how we decimated them. And so it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and water protectors are on the bridge, and they, they, they began firing water cannons at the water protectors. Again, it is North Dakota, it is November, temperatures are below freezing, and they shot water cannons at human beings for two hours. That Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, the North Dakota governor declared that for safety reasons, camp would have to be cleared. And in truth, blizzards were coming. People would have died. But, they're, they're, you know, we could also just said for safety reasons, this pipeline couldn't be built. 
So, sure, safety is a concern. Um, but that's not the only concern. Um, it so happened that they were saying it should, that this camp will have to be evacuated on December, I believe it was 4th or 5th, I can't really remember. And that happened to be the exact time that veterans were showing up to stand in solidarity with, um, with Standing Rock. Thousands of veterans were coming. Actually, we, by latest, last count, we thought over 10,000 veterans were there. I met veterans from World War II and every conflict since. Which, by the way, we've always been at conflict at some point. 10,000 veterans who, have, who served our country. Who know friends who lost blood on soil around the world showed up to stand in solidarity for indigenous people to have the right to their soil. And we quickly knew that if we have 10,000 trained soldiers in camp at the exact same time that militarized forces are going to try to evacuate camp, there will be bloodshed. There was just no way around it. There was going to be bloodshed. And so the tribal elders actually contacted through Episcopal priest um, the need for trained trauma chaplains. As I said, I was was a hospital chaplain for a decade um, in a trauma center. Um, So so the announcement for the evacuation was Friday. Saturday, I get an email asking me to go to North Dakota as a trained trauma chaplain to be with veterans. So that's how I ended up in Standing Rock. I want to also explain to you a little bit about how we got to Standing Rock as a globe and what is the church's complicity in that. And I have already gone way too long. Is that okay? I'll, I'll sum up quick. Look up the doctrine of discovery. Write that down, those three words, doctrine of discovery. It is a collection of papal bulls beginning in the 1400s. The first was the Pope deciding, really between the King of Spain and Portugal, dividing the entire world, saying, okay, from this part, Portugal gets it, from this part, Spain gets it. The doctrine of discovery actually evolves to this idea that any representative of a of a Catholic nation, of a Christian nation, anytime they land on soil that doesn't belong to the sovereign of a Christian nation, they can claim that for their Christian sovereign. That is how we claimed America. Just so you know, the U.S. Supreme Court in the case Jacobson versus McIntosh actually cited the doctrine of discovery. And so the doctrine of discovery is actually part of U.S. law. That is how we continue to break treaties with indigenous people and take their land. Think about slavery. Think about African Americans working soil, blood, sweat, and tears in soil. When they were emancipated, what were they promised? 40 acres and a mule. Soil. Did they ever get it? No. Think about post-World War II when African Americans had served nobly and they came back and there was these GI bills and there was ways to get housing, but not if you were black. Think about the most recent housing crisis when banks targeted black Americans for subprime loans and how that 
2008 was the biggest robbery of wealth from urban centers since the 40s. It's always been about blood and soil. It will always be about blood and soil until we figure out how to do it differently. Cain and Abel, when God confronts Cain, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me for justice. In Revelation 10.6, the people are praying to God, hey God, how long are you going to listen to the cries from the blood of the martyrs and not do justice? The blood of our land is crying out for justice. And I want you to begin to imagine what if every social problem is the fact that we're on soil that belong to other people and their blood is crying for justice? What if the opioid epidemic is people that are sensitive to those cries, they don't know what they mean, and so they have to anesthetize themselves to those cries? What if the greed and constant hunger of our nation that always wants a more of a house is all because they don't feel at home in their current house? What if all of it is about blood and soil? I, my time ended at Standing Rock when the blizzard came. We once again were marching towards that bridge, thousands of us. I was afraid we were going to be killed. But I'm a chaplain, so I'm supposed to be with the veterans. I, I, I honestly thought it was my last day on this earth. And the blizzard hit. Our prayers for many Wachoni, water is life, water conspired with wind in a way that sent us indoors for our safety. And then that wind scattered the 25,000 people that were there around the world. The movement of Standing Rock, the movement to redeem blood and soil is with you now. We are in that space. This is our time to be witnesses for truth, for hope, for justice, for the gospel, for the good news for the oppressed. Friends, this is our time and place. We have been entrusted with this moment to be agents of God's shalom. May it be so.